Welcome to Short Course, episode 37, for October 12th, 2018. I'm your host, Ben Barry. A few weeks ago, USPSA posted a changelog and a proposed updated rulebook that'll be effective in the 2019 competition season, and I finally got a chance to dig into the changes, see what all alterations they've made, and what the impact will be, and I wanted to go over those on the podcast this week and probably next week and talk about them because I think they're I think they're good changes uh, almost across the board. I think they'll they'll fix problems with the sport. They won't really change anything fundamental, and I think they're they're making much needed changes. So I'm I'm pretty happy with the outcome, but I want to I want to cover in detail what they're actually changing because there are little things that I think we've all tripped over in knowing that the rule book is going to solve them if these rules are adopted as written. Then I want people to know that so we can stop dealing with these these little things. So let's dive right in. The first thing is this new rule book will just roll in all the clarifications and the rules changes that have been made in the last five years since the 2014 rule books were published, which for the most part is pretty straightforward stuff. Things like adding the half size targets as being legal, the production division changes, allowing more aftermarket modifications, and then adding stuff like PCC and carry optics division. And there are a number of changes that I that I don't call out that are in the official change log that are it's just basic stuff about adding start position rules for PCC. Just all the things that were in the PCC appendix is now integrated into the relevant section of the main rulebook, which is good. The second type of changes are things that have always been allowed or were sort of implicitly allowed but are now explicitly acknowledged in the rulebook. And the, the three that I noticed were, the first is that if you can see a moving target before it's activated, you can shoot it. That, that's always been the rule, but it's clarified that that's explicitly legal just to avoid gray area. The second one is inside the waistband holsters are explicitly legal as long as you can safely holster them without sweeping yourself and all that. As long as it complies with all the rules of, of the sport, they're legal. And that's always been the case, but it's now being called out which I think is mostly good so that new shooters, when they're looking specifically for mention of IWB holsters, they can they can find that. Those in the sport, we kind of already knew about this, but if someone's trying to check if their holster is legal before showing up to their first match, they'll now find that line and have more confidence, which I think is a good thing. And then the third thing is the fact that it's always been legal to have markings inside your magwell in production. You can whether you want a candy stripe or some kind of bright dot to, to visually index on. That is not legal in IPSC, I believe. I believe it's not legal in IPSC, but it is legal in USPSA through the, if it's not illegal, it's legal doctrine. Production is a bit of a gray area because they do say, does that qualify as a modification? Because production prohibits all modifications that aren't explicitly allowed. I think we all pretty much understood the, that a little bit of paint isn't a modification, but and so that's been allowed. Nobody's nobody's been penalized for it, but it's been a bit of a gray area. So that's that's now been clarified. Another category of clarifications is cleaning up the naming, in particular the, the confusing naming of targets. So in the old rules, the poppers with heads on them were called pepper poppers or mini pepper poppers, and the poppers without heads on them, which are the only legal targets in IPSC, were called classic poppers or mini classics. Likewise, the paper targets, the, the IPSC target was called the classic target, even though it's newer, and the American target was called the metric target, even though 
it's used in America only where we don't use the metric system. Officially, the specs for the target were in metric. That's why it was named that. But having the newer targets of both types called the classic target was just confusing. And if you ask someone what the difference between a pepper and a classic popper was, they probably couldn't tell you. So all that's been fixed. Now there's USPSA targets, which are cardboard targets with heads on them, and IPSC cardboard targets, which are the octagon target. No more classic or metric. It's just IPSC and USPSA targets. And the same distinction is now in place for poppers. So USPSA poppers and USPSA mini poppers have heads on them. IPSC mini poppers and IPSC poppers have no head. Super clear. Not exactly a problem that was grinding matches to a halt or anything, but good for just having people be able to understand what the terms mean in the sport, keeping it modern, getting rid of honestly confusing metric versus classic terminology. So fan of that. Okay. That's kind of the high level stuff. Let's actually dig into the change log and the, and the individual rules going, starting in the, the early part of the rule book and moving forward. And again, what I'm going to talk about here is a condensed summary of the very thorough change log that USPSA has posted under the members area. So go take a look at that if you want more details. They're very concise, but I've just skipped over some stuff that that's more about minor wording changes that that I really don't think will make a difference in my experience in the sport. So first rule in the rule book that's changed or added is I think pretty emblematic of these changes, which is it doesn't actually change the rules, but it just clarifies them. And it adds emphasis to rule 1.3.1 that says, except where noted in these rules, level one matches must comply with all rules. Matches that do not comply with these requirements will not be sanctioned and must not be publicized or announced as USPSA sanctioned matches, which basically says, even if it's a level one, if you're not going to follow the rules, don't call it a USPSA match. So ratcheting up the intensity from headquarters about making sure that even club matches follow all the rules, except where there are explicit level one exceptions, which for the record, I think level one exceptions are good. I think it makes the sport easier to run at a club level. I think having a few of them is a good thing, but making them explicit is important and not letting people do things that are otherwise outside the spirit of USPSA. Second rule, and this is actually, this is a big one and we'll come back to it later, but this is rule 2.2.1.2. And it says that a shooting area is defined as a surface inch side shooting boxes, fault lines, walls, or any other barrier. Shooting boxes and fault lines must be fixed to the surface and may not be less than the minimum height required. Shooting boxes and fault lines are considered to be a part of the shooting area. So if your foot is on the fault line, you're still inside the shooting area. Objects outside the shooting area, whether they contact the shooting box, fault lines, walls, or any other barrier are not a part of the shooting area except as specified in 10.2, which we'll get to that later when we get to it. But let me read that again. Objects outside the shooting area, whether they contact the shooting box, fault lines, walls, or any other barrier, are not a part of the shooting area. So this means that, and this is explicitly spelled out in chapter 10, wall supports are no longer gimmicked into being part of the shooting area because they're connected to a wall, which is part of the barrier, and so you can stand on the backside of the wall and shoot targets. This is a very good change because there are, in theory, you can debug this out of stages. This solves a problem that could have been solved with good course construction before. I don't disagree with that. That said, there have been matches, particularly local matches, 
where you're just not going to have people debugging stages and having a having so let's say you're at a local match and there are six stages one of which is a classifier so you have five interesting stages and it turns out that one of the five gets completely gimmicked out of relevance by being able to stand on the back of a wall and shoot some targets from where they're not supposed to be available that that's not good for the sport nobody enjoys that and you might say at a club match who cares i would agree with that I did, and not to call them out for it, but I did see there was a stage like this at the South Carolina section this year. And I don't say that to, to shame them. It could, I mean, it could happen to anybody. There, They were using these walls with these L-shaped support brackets. And as with the current reading of the rules, because that support bracket, which was two two by fours, since that was connected to the wall and the wall formed part of the barrier of the shooting area, Standing on that support bracket was just like standing on the fault line. It was just like having your feet on the fault line. And it made that stage much less interesting. Now, I don't think it broke that stage. I don't know if the stage winner shot that or not. I didn't use that, and I it, I wasn't out of the running on that stage. I had a decent score on it, so it didn't completely invalidate the stage, but it was really lame. And I don't I don't blame anybody for who wanted to win for taking that solution, but I'm glad that they're fixing that issue because it just it just it just makes the sport lame. It, it's not it's clearly not what the stage designer intended. And I don't want to go down that route about stage designer intent. But I think establishing this rule that wall supports and anything that's not a fault line or the wall itself, you can't stand on it. I think that's good. And there are a couple more rules later on that, that come back to this. But calling it out here and saying very clearly a shooting area is defined as surface inside shooting boxes, fault lines, walls, or any other barrier. So it's a surface inside the shooting box. It's not some piece of two by four that's tangentially attached to the shooting box. This is this is a good change. I'm, I'm a fan. 2.2.3.3 is it's actually just including in the in the rule book a clarification that had already been issued last year. Which is sort of a subtle change, but again, I think a good one to avoid some of the uh, gimmicks that you see at particularly club matches sometimes with stages that haven't been super thoroughly debugged, but it just, it, it makes the sport more reasonable by default. And so it says that any wall that is five foot nine or taller is deemed by default to stretch to infinity, which that's the way that that we've been shooting a lot of stages, but every once in a while you'll have a stage where somebody who's you know six feet or taller will try and shoot over a double barrel stack or something, and it's usually not enough of a competitive advantage. But it just it th- this just makes it clear that if the wall is at least five foot nine, which is head height for average American males, then it is by default assumed to extend to infinity, and so this means that they're you'll just have fewer gimmicks. Match directors just have fewer little gimmicks that they can they can be tripped up by. If they build the stage in good faith and the wall is six feet high, then there's no doubt. Wall stretches to infinity and it stretches to the ground. There is language, and this is the way that stages have been run for as long as I've been in the sport, that if you want to explicitly make the wall so you can shoot over it or under it, that that can be clearly marked. That's all still in there, but this just moves the default to be reasonable. Everybody understands you can't shoot over this wall if it's average height. 
All right, 2.3.7 is an interesting one. This is an entirely new rule that's been inserted that reflects what I was taught in my RO and CRO classes, which is, it, it says, routine maintenance to a stage, such as, but not limited to, replacing targets, target sticks, activators, and other props, ensuring all metal targets remain in proper working order, including adjustment by range staff, are not considered modifications, which means competitors can't complain about them, basically. You can do whatever you need to do, changing target sticks, adjusting your poppers to maintain the, that your stage is in proper working order. Uh, the rule continues. The staff, cooperatively with the range master and quartermaster, are required to ensure competitive equity for all competitors. Such maintenance is not subject to protest or appeal by competitors unless a safety issue is involved. So what this means is the old RO excuse of they can't reset a popper until someone calls for calibration on it is out the window, which... Like I said, this is what I had been told in my RO and CRO classes, particularly the CRO class. We were told your stage is your responsibility. You can't change it. You can't competitively materially change the stage. But in terms of maintaining your stage in good working order, you you as the CRO are have free reign. And the, for example, suggested ideas in between squads just walk around and give all the, the steel targets a little tap with your knuckle and just feel if they're falling out of calibration. And if they are out of calibration, rule 2.3.7 makes it explicit. It's not word of mouth from a CRO class anymore. It makes it explicit that you as the range officer or CRO can can fix that on the spot. You don't have to wait for a competitor to eat the penalty and hope they win calibration to fix the the popper that's, that's fallen out, which... Again, it's not a, a, a radical change, but I think it will help the sport. It doesn't completely 100% fix the whole problem with poppers screwing people over, but I think it will start to hopefully shift the culture toward ROs not being so hands-off and, and taking more responsibility for maintaining their stages, which I think is a good thing. All right, next rule. Minor change, but I think a good one. 4.3.1.5.1 says that when you are the, the minimum, so normally for steel targets, you have to have at least half the calibration zone available from somewhere within the shooting area for it to be considered a, a legal target. If you only have a tiny sliver of the calibration zone available, or if you only have the head of a headed popper, which is not part of the calibration zone, then that's not a legal target presentation. That That's the rule as it has been. This just adds a small modification that says that for mini poppers, you have to have 100% of the calibration zone, which I think makes sense. They're already small enough trying to make them partials. It's just, if nothing else, it's a logistical problem because if you do have a partial, it's usually going to be behind a barrel. And as you shoot the barrel, it's going to shimmy. And having a barrel move an inch either way as you shoot it over the course of a match with a big popper might not make that much of a difference, but if you really only have 50% of the calibration zone on a mini popper available, and then that gets shaved by an inch, you're, you start to get to some real competitive equity problems. And so I think making it 100% on mini poppers, no problem. Makes sense to me. I like it. 5.2.1.1 is an interesting clarification that I that I actually like. It seems a little bit esoteric, but I think it, it clarifies a gray area that I've found myself falling into, and, and it's this. So this is a, a sub-rule of the rule that just says you either have to have your gun in your holster or bagged unless you're 
under RO supervision or in a safe area. But what the rule change says is, to be considered bagged, the handgun must be in a case or bag that completely covers the firearm and prevents access to the trigger, including having the zipper completely closed. What I like about this is it it takes the gray area of when is the gun bagged and gives it a, a defined yes-no point, which is the zipper being closed. Yes, it's kind of arbitrary, but I think it's good to be clear. And the reason this is useful is this is a gray area that I, as a range officer, have fallen into. So sometimes you'll have competitors that bag up between stages, or they are at it might be the last stage of the day, and they bring their bag up to the where they're going to end the stage, and they just unload and show clear straight into the bag, and then they can just take off their belt and be done. And my personal rule has always been that the zipper is is when I call a range is clear, if someone's unloading and showing clear. So in the same way that I wait until, if someone has a race holster, I wait until they engage the lock on the race holster, because if it's in the race holster and it's unlocked and they bump it and I've called range is clear, then it's on me that the gun wasn't really secured. By the same rule, I feel a little bit pedantic waiting until the zipper's closed, but it's it's a good it's a good clear distinction. And so that's actually now been explicitly put into the rules. The other place that this comes in is there have been times where guys will want to gun up at the make ready. And this actually happened at the at the match I shot this Saturday, where there was somebody who was going to do this. It was actually on every stage. He he took his gun off between stages and at make ready, he would always unbag and holster up. And I noticed when he was on deck, he'd be walking around with his gun in this pouch with the zipper open. And I wasn't going to DQ him for that, but I was I was looking at it and I was saying that, you know, where where's the line? That's a gray area. So I literally found myself in that situation not a week ago. And so the fact that I can now at least go up to him and say, hey, just so you know, the rule is the gun has to say zipped and bagged until until you get to make ready. Just just so there's clarity. Minor thing, yes, but it just reduces gray area. I'm a fan. Moving on to the rules about holstering the gun, when something's holstered, what, what's considered a ready position and all that. One change that I think was a part of a clarification that's now being rolled into the rules proper is that in the more restrictive divisions, production and single stack, the holster, the, the allowable distance of your holster and equipment from the inside of your belt is now the narrow dimension of an overlay. And in the more open division, so open and limited and that kind of thing, it's the long dimension of an overlay. And so you can actually pretty quickly ascertain just by pulling out an overlay and just sticking it against the guy's belt if he's complying with the rules or not. Do I think it's a rampant issue in the sport of people having their gear too far from their belt? No, not really. But it's just nice that it, they've kind of rounded the edges off measuring that. No longer is it getting a measuring tape and, and trying to do that. It's just drop the overlay in there. That's your that's your quick measuring stick. And everybody's got overlays. I've You get a set of them every year as an RO. They're just, yeah, they're all over the place. So it just... It's it's an easy way to just make administering that rule a little bit easier. What is an interesting rule that I'm I'm this is one of the rules that I'm a little bit mixed on. I'm not really mixed on most things, but this one gives me a little bit of pause. And the rule just says five two so it's five point two point five point two, and it says that towards the end of the rule quote 
if the RO suspects or is notified that a competitor's equipment is out of compliance for their relevant division, the RO must measure the distances at that time. So that's kind of interesting because, I don't know, how much are you actually going to let yourself be derailed if if somebody taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, is that guy's belt the right distance? Are you going to whip out an overlay and make him stand and, and measure him right there? I mean, how many times are you really going to subject someone to that? I don't know. The, the, but on the other hand, having to do it right then puts the onus on the range officer not to just say, oh, well, someone else will take care of it. So I'm kind of mixed on that one. I would, I would maybe revise the verbiage a little bit. I don't really think anybody's going to, you know, use it to, to harass somebody by every stage, you know, going to the range officer. Hey, I suspect that this guy's belt is out of compliance and then make the RO do the test right there. I don't really see that happening, but rules is written. It's, it's a little bit tight. So a little bit of concern there, but I like the idea that it's, it's on the RO to just check right then. And if you have an, if you have an overlay and it's a quick five second process just to check. Okay. I, I, I'm a fan of that. There's a change that actually wasn't in the official change log because it's very subtle, but I actually, I think it's a, I think it's a good change. And so the change is in rule 5.2.5.3, which contains two sentences. The second sentence is, if a retaining strap is permanently attached to a holster or magazine pouch, it must be applied or closed prior to the issuance of the standby command. And the change is, they actually added the word permanently there. So it now says, if a retaining strap is permanently attached to a holster. And the reason I like this, again, not a huge problem with the sport, but before the wording was if the retaining strap is attached to the holster. And this always created a little bit of gray area because one of the things that I do like to do is keep a bungee or a hair tie or something and just use it to loop around my gun in my holster so that it's held in in between stages so that if I'm doing something like a full speed walkthrough or just running down the hill to the Porta John, or if I have to run back to my car to get some water, I'm not having to do that awkward hand on the holster running thing. So I can just put a, put a hair tie over it or whatever. And, and the guns held in the holster. The fact that the old rule said attached was in theory, ambiguous. I had numerous people at, at club matches say, Oh, don't, don't do that at a big match. They'll, they'll make you do it on every stage. And honestly, I I was risk averse enough that I would make sure to take it off before a big match because I didn't want to have some trigger happy RO try and gig me with having to do that at make ready on every single stage for for a state match or something. And so the fact that the the rule now says permanently attached, I think clarifies that a hair tie doesn't count. And I think that's good. I I didn't think the old rules really substantiated a hair tie counting. But at the same time, I just, I didn't want to risk it. And so that's nice. I'll, I'll start doing that again. Minor change. Like I said, I don't think it's in the, the official change log, but I, I noticed that. And, and I think it's an improvement. And some of these rules, I definitely have to say, really feel like they are clarifications that come in from things that have actually happened. These are resolving gray areas and they're, they're minor tweaks to clarify a situation based on something that's actually happened at real matches. And, and so I think adding those to the rulebook makes sense. For example, 5.7.2.1 now clarifies that trying to clear a squib on the clock is considered unsafe gun handling and is a DQ. 
I don't know why that's a rule, but I can only imagine that some guy at some point tried to clear a squib on the clock and tried to argue that, well, if he didn't muzzle himself and it all worked, then he should be allowed to do it because freestyle and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I, you shouldn't have gotten the squib. If you're trying to clear it on the clock, that's, that's on you. So I think this is a good change. I think people, especially when you get bad malfunctions and people are on the clock, they, they go a little bit haywire. I think they make bad decisions. And so taking the pressure off and saying, no, you're not allowed to try and clear a squib on the clock. I think that's an improvement and I'm sure there's a story behind it. Likewise, the, the next rule is 7.2.3, which just says that if a shooter who is also part of the match staff DQs due to a safety infraction and the safety infraction was caused by, quote, a medical condition, which is not really defined, but I'm assuming it means something like either some kind of neuromuscular problem or just heat stroke, something like that, then it says that they will not be allowed to continue to work the match as staff. So if you DQ because of a medical reason, you're not fit to work the match. If you're not fit to shoot the match, you're not fit to work it either. Again, I don't know the story behind that rule, but but I'm sure it's there. And, and I think it makes sense. If, if you're not physically fit enough to safely finish the match, then then you probably shouldn't be working the next three days in the hot sun or, or whatever the case may be. All right, guys, that's right about half of what I've got in my notes. So I'm going to stop here. We'll pick up again next week. We'll have another episode covering the, the second half of the changes, and we'll wrap up then. That wraps up this episode of Short Course. If you want to get in touch, my email is podcast at barryshooting.com. I post all of my match videos on YouTube at youtube.com slash benberryuspsa. Talk to you next time.